Good morning, everybody. So this morning, uh, following along in our in our uh, Sunday school lessons regarding, uh, well, kind of in the joyful generosity themed um, series that we've been doing, this morning we're going to talk about materialism and and a few things the scripture has to say, um, both warnings uh, and positive kind of encouraging comments that have to do with materialism as well. I mean, materialism we know inherently, right? We we know this is a a bad thing, um, and and we we say, oh, materialism. I don't want to be materialistic. Um, and before we, and, and that's right, right? That is what we see in Scripture, and we're going to talk about that. But before we do, I think understanding what materialism um, is 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 important. And so, as I was working on this, I pulled a couple definitions together to kind of. Oh, hold on, James. I'm having. Did I do that? That's a good... No, it's not. Thank you. Hey, look at that. So I've grabbed a couple definitions here because it's not just the immediate thought of materialistic, like I'm focused on materialistic things that we need to be worried about here. And so I, I pulled two definitions, one from dictionary.com. Um, it's, it's defined as a preoccupation or an emphasis on material objects, right? That's what we know. Um, on material objects, comforts, and considerations with a disinterest in or rejection of spiritual, intellectual, or cultural values. So it's, it's two sides to this. There is a preoccupation, something that they're enamored with, the material side, but also the taking place of or the rejection of the spiritual, intellectual, or cultural side. Um, I looked at... Uh, going the right way here. I've looked at... Uh, a website called allaboutphilosophy.com, and I don't endorse this website at all, so please don't, don't uh, take my comment that way, but I found the definition interesting. Materialism can refer to either to the simple preoccupation with the material world as opposed to the intellectual or spiritual concepts, or to a theory that a physical matter is all there is. This theory is far more than a simple focus on material possessions. It states that everything in the universe is matter without any true spiritual or intellectual existence. Materialism can also refer to a doctrine that material success and progress are the highest values in life. This doctrine appears to be prevalent in Western society today. I thought that was particularly poignant from a secular website um, because it highlights a couple different aspects here. One that, yeah, materialism in the small form can be something we're preoccupied with. In the larger form, it becomes a whole worldview that replaces everything in our life. It becomes about material things and not about the spiritual or the eternal things. Um, and, it, and it can lead to, it's a progressive path, right? It can lead from a preoccupation with the comforts of life and the material items to all about materialism. Um, and that worldview uh, even involves just rejecting God and spirituality altogether. <clears throat> so today, as we move from, from these websites into what Scripture has to say, we're going to focus on two, two aspects of this. We're going to look at five warnings uh, from uh, Scripture on what materialism uh, can, or what we should be watchful with regards to materialism. And then we're going to look at p- five more positive aspects uh, of Scripture with regards to materialistic or ma- the, the issues involved in materialism. So, in respects to the warnings, I, I put them on the slide here. I'm not going to review each one of them because we're going to go through each one in some detail and I'm conscious of my time. 
Um, So moving to the first warning here, it is this, that the principle is that it is possible for Christians to be in bondage to material possessions, right? So it is possible for Christians, um, it's not just non-believers, to be in bondage to material possessions. And this teaching um, comes from Matthew 6.24, which says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So it's pretty direct um, and poignant. This teaching is an extension of what Christ had just, uh, just taught, Uh, regarding the heart in Matthew 6.21, where he said, uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So money can become our master, and in fact, many Christians have allowed themselves to be enslaved to materialism, um, even under the guise of of good or or, or thinking that it's it's benefiting the church or benefiting their families um, uh, along the way. So it is something to watch out for. In this sense, they can serve, they serve money, not Christ, and they're in bondage to material possessions. Um, this is really what, what Christ taught about when we read Matthew 19, 16 through 22, regarding the rich young ruler. So I don't, uh, that, that, uh, in that, that teaching um, says, that scripture says, And behold, a man came up to him, teacher, Teacher, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He goes on to say what those commandments are, and the rich young ruler says, Well, I've done all these things. What more do you want me to do? Um, and Christ says, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me, inviting him to be a disciple. Um, Leave all these worldly belongings behind. Sell all that you have and commit yourself, commit your life to following me. Well, when the young man had heard what he said, it said he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So in this case, you can see the heart of the rich young ruler, Money was where his, where his heart was, and Christ knew that to be true. He knew this man's heart, and he refused to sell these possessions and, and follow Christ. Ultimately, he turned away and walked away from Christ. So he gave up the opportunity to be a disciple of Christ because he was in love with these material possessions, right? Living out the warning that we had just read that you can't serve two masters, God and money. In this case, his master was his possessions, why do we find this attractive, right? So it's the rich young ruler, like everyone who is tempted with materialism. It is about comfort. It's about security. It's about power. It's about being self-reliant. <clears throat> These things all take the place of God within our hearts. Um, and we're called, to, we're called to evaluate our hearts to see if this is a particular sin that we deal with, right? We're warned that this is prevalent. This is a big, this is a big concern. And so we're called to evaluate our hearts. Um, at times, God will discipline his children that fall into this type of sin, we know, by removing material possessions from them, hoping they'll refer, not hoping, but causing them to refocus their hearts and their, their minds on Christ and the eternal things. Um, the solution that we see really, and this is prevalent throughout everything we're talking about this morning on materialism, 
comes from Matthew 6.33, and that is, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about the materialistic things. Worry about the eternal things. God will provide the rest. So our first warning is that materialism can, uh, can in fact, impact Christians as well. Um, the second principle I want to cover on warnings, <clears throat> make sure my slide's on the right page here, is whatever, whatever, whenever, wherever Christianity is active, some people will attempt to use the Christian message to benefit themselves. So in Acts 8, 9 through 25 is our scripture reference for this point. And this has to do with Simon the sorcerer. So Simon tried to buy the ability or buy the power of the Holy Spirit in this early church. Um, The reading goes on from uh, 925. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed, the scripture says. After being baptized, he continued with Philip, seeing signs and great miracles performed, and he was amazed. So he sees the power of the Spirit being worked out uh, in the community there. And the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word from God, and they sent Peter and John. So Peter and John come down to Samaria to see what's going on as this conversion is happening, and these people are getting baptized They laid their hands on them, it says, and they received the Holy Spirit. So these people had been baptized, coming to faith, but they were now given the Holy Spirit through Peter and John. Um, And now when Simon saw the Spirit was given to them through the laying on of, of hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could attain the gift of God from money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for where your heart for your heart is not right before God, and calls him to repentance. So we see Simon here getting greedy for power, the power of of God, the power of of transmitting the Holy Spirit. Um, Obviously, in today's church, we don't see that same kind of power grab because that act or that that gift of imparting the Holy Spirit isn't something that is operative through members of our church. But we certainly see people that want to take control of the church for their own power, their own wealth, and their own glory, right? To take the gospel message and distort it for their own benefit. And that is a materialistic motive. When God provides... God provides instruction to support the church financially, we know, to support the leadership financially. Um, But that also is a temptation that Satan uses to draw out people that would use it for their own selfish gains. So the reality is the church needs money to operate. These things are interrelated. Um, But it also provides a target for people looking to take advantage and to profit in the name of the church. So Paul countered this temptation when preaching in, in, at times, not all the time, but at times, 
preaching for no compensation at all. He, he in fact, made his own way, making tents and, and providing for his own needs at time in order to remove this issue from, move the financial um, incentive or the financial issue from the table. Uh, this is the same reason that spiritual leaders, both elders and deacons, are called specifically in Scripture not to be lovers of money or to be pursuing dishonest gain. So these are all hedges or warnings that go along with, with warnings about people that would use the Christian message for their own materialistic purposes. The third warning that I want to cover here uh, is accumulating wealth brings with it specific temptations for both Christians and non-Christians. And the scripture reading is from James 5, 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted your garments, are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. So James was addressing non-Christians in this in this book, but these same principles are true for Christians as well. And what James is warning about are several things, but they include um, unfair and dishonest motives, right? So rationalizing or compromising our convictions to justify the accumulation of material things. So remember, the warning here is that the accumulation of wealth brings with it specific temptations. So uh, temptations like being unfair and dishonest, being self-indulgent, you can say, I worked hard for this, I deserve this, um, you know, this is something, this is the spoils of my efforts, or even hoarding, right, storing up treasures on earth rather than in heaven to feel secure in your own right, to not be reliant on other people or even reliant on God because you're providing for your own needs. So being a Christian doesn't eliminate these temptations from us. I mean, all of those things are prevalent in the secular world, but they're also they're also prevalent within the church, and, for, and they are temptations for Christians as well, is what we learn. Um, we have to be prepared, and those that are in position to accumulate wealth specifically have to be prepared to stand up and make a defense in the same way that Christ did to Satan when he was offered to him all the material possessions, given the whole world, if he would only bow down before him. And, you know, our, our temptations probably aren't as in our face as Satan appearing before us and making us an offer like that, but they are just as real nonetheless. And so we have to be prepared to take that same stand that, that Christ did. <clears throat> Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, or really verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. So it's a warning, a warning that um, the accumulation of wealth brings with it these temptations. The, the fourth principle... Oh. I, is that me or you, James? James? Me? Okay, all right, thank you. As a day of Christ draws near, Christians should avoid 
the increasing ten tendency to intensify love for self, money, and pleasure. So as the end times draw nearer, we know that there are temptations, there are sins, there are things that are going to become more prevalent in society, that are going to be a bigger temptation and a bigger problem for all of us. And that is what we see in, in this particular verse of 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 2, and then 4 through 5. But I understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. And then it goes on to say, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people is what we're called to do. So in this, this is Paul's warning um, shortly before he was sentenced to death, right? So he's... He's imprisoned. Essentially, this is part of his final written word, and he's holding fast to the second coming of Christ. He issues this warning on what would come to pass just before that return of Christ, and, uh, and that warning is this, that this is going to be an increasing temptation. Be on guard. Be wary of this, and that is something that, that we all need to be conscious about. So scripture is clear that Christians are not to love the world or anything within the world, Paul instructs us that our lives should not conform to the patterns of this world in Romans. This is not a call to isolation from the world, but it's a warning that if we associate closely with the world and we're not walking with God, we will soon reflect those the same traits of the world, right? So we need to be careful. It's, it's a balance of not being an isolationist but being a true witness of Christ, evangelizing, going out and making disciples as we're called to, without becoming like the world. So we are to take seriously the words of Paul that these temptations will be increasing as we get closer to Christ's return. The final warning that I want to cover today is that the Christians must be on guard against self-deception and rationalization when they're living in an affluent society. And this is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and the salve <clears throat> and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So this is Christ's final exhortation to the church of Laodicea. This church has a materialistic mindset. They were all about materialism. They had fallen into this sin. They become conformed to the world systems, um, and this, and that's the that is the warning that we see here. Christ says that they need three things. He calls them to have faith, which is represented by gold in this uh, scripture, true righteousness and holiness, the white garments, and restored vision, the save, to see their materialistic sin. The people. The principle here is that it's easy to be content with worldly wealth and to feel that we have everything we need and thus we no longer need God. That's the sentiment that you see that Christ is calling out um, with this particular church. How true is this in our Western society where we live in the most powerful and wealthy nation in history and yet we see the pervasive rejection of God um, and the importance placed on material wealth? This false self-security it brings and the lack 
the lack of giving as things are hoarded amongst people and amassed into fortunes at the expense of, of the needs of other people. And that really is the ultimate outcome of, of materialism and the rejection of God along the way. So we're called to be on guard against this influence in our society and to value um, and, and the value of that the society place on wealth and the lack of need for God, just as we saw here in the church of Laodicea. So these are the, these are the five warnings. I want to take a look at five more positive aspects that Scripture has to, to talk about materialism. <clears throat> if you want to say it that way, it's hard to say anything materialistic is necessarily positive, but I think this is the, kind of the counter-argument to, uh, to the warnings we just looked at. And the first being whatever, whatever excess material possession God's enables Christians to accumulate should be used in creative ways to further the kingdom of God. From Matthew six nineteen through 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, it comes back to this notion of the heart, ultimately. It really isn't about how much money is in your bank account. It really comes to your heart. Are you focused on eternal things, or are you focused on, on earthly material things? So whatever excess materials should be used in a way to further the kingdom, this, this doesn't mean it's wrong to plan ahead, to save, to do financial planning, to plan for the needs of your family. In fact, those are all affirmed in the book of Proverbs. We're called to be wise. We're called to do these things. This is an issue of the heart. So what is excess, right? That always comes the big question. When do you know that there's excess? Um, that's not an easy question to answer. There is no fixed answer. There is no fixed formula that we can just apply to you and say, oh, yeah, you have X amount of excess. You should go use it in this purpose. God puts this on our heart. It can be found when we analyze, truly analyze our own heart and our own needs and what we're, what we're doing with the resources that the Lord has provided to us. And without neglecting our human responsibilities, we find creative ways to use what the Lord has provided in order to further the, further the kingdom and store up treasures in heaven. And that is the calling. The second positive aspect here um, in Scripture that we're going to cover is that it is not the will of God for Christians to be absorbed um, with worry about future, with worry about the future and how their material needs will be met. Matthew six thirty four a. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. This is not a calling for Christians to be unconcerned about their material needs. Where we see a direct teaching in from Christ regarding diligent planning, hard work. Right, we just talked about this being responsible. These are all reinforced throughout Scripture. Christ is referring here to the human tendency to devote all of our energies to worrying about our life on earth and to making it more comfortable. Right? What we'll eat, what we'll drink, what we'll wear. It will consume us if we let it. If we're not trusting in God to provide these things, which is exactly what we see in this Scripture in Matthew, if we're worried about ourselves providing these things, then all of our energies get poured into just that trying to accumulate more materialistic things in order to accomplish these. 
If we're continually anxious, we're probably not. We have not arrived at that important balance between trusting God wholly to meet our needs and at the same time doing our part to be responsible Christians in the world, right? Working hard, diligently, planning while trusting the Lord. We're assured by God that he'll meet our needs. He looks over the birds in the air, we're told, and the lilies in the field. And we're instructed by Paul not to be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to the Lord. And our third item for this morning is that God sometimes allows difficulties and discomforts to come into Christians' experiences in order to refocus their priorities on eternal values. So from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, this takes place just after the stoning of Stephen. Saul is ravaging the church, we're told. It says, in here arose on the day a great day of persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea Samaria, and Samaria, except the apostles, devoted men, buried Stephen, and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. God uses extreme persecutions. In the early church, he used them in Jerusalem to directly and expediently spread the gospel to nations outside of Jerusalem, just as he had instructed in Matthew 28, verse 19, was that the the gospel would go forward from there and spread throughout the nations. This was the catalyst that he used. The same principle is explained by Paul when he says during his imprisonment in Rome that it served to advance the gospel. When he writes in Philippians 1, 12 through 13, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ, right? He's in chains for Christ. We see examples in the Old Testament. We see Joseph's a great example. Everything's stripped from Joseph. He's sold into slavery by his own brothers, um, false allocations, imprisonment, heartache, years of persecution. This is what what he's plagued with, and yet God has his own purposes for all of it and uses Joseph in a great way. So how is this a positive issue on materialism? This all seems pretty bad, frankly. So we know we talk about imprisonment, false allegations, suffering. Well, it's encouraging because we know that God allows and causes discomfort and dis and difficulties to come into our lives for his purposes and sometimes in order to focus our hearts and minds on eternal values. A lot of times this involves materialism. These are all material things that are taken um, in these cases. And it can happen to us. We lose a job. There's stock market crash and we lose our savings. There's material possessions get stolen. Um, our material possessions may be really stripped away at any time, leaving us in total reliance on God. But we can take comfort in knowing that in all things, God works for good for those who love him and those that have been called according to his purpose, according to Romans 8.28. So we find joy in suffering, including when material items are at the core of this suffering. So even when our focus, of, when, the, when the outpouring of, of the issues that we're facing are material-related, we find encouragement knowing that Christ um, has a good purpose for all of it. Fourth, Christians should learn to be content in difficult times as well as prosperous times. So find contentment 
in difficult times and prosperous times. Philippians 4, 12 through 13, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So as we discussed earlier, it is true that God promises to meet our needs. However, this doesn't mean he's always going to give us everything that we want or even everything that we think we need to make our lives comfortable. But we can be content regardless of the situation that we're in, regardless of how our materialistic needs are being met. Paul says here in Philippians that he has learned to be content whatever the circumstances, and we should be able to do the same, so in all circumstances. Paul faced many difficult times in his ministry, but he always remained encouraging. He commended the Philippians at the end of his letter to them for their generosity and giving to him. Gave them, he, they were giving to him financially, giving to him money. Um, he commended them again and again, it says in Scripture, because they were acting in obedience to Christ and that their generosity would be credited to their account. The, the Philippians found contentment and would be rewarded um, in not in accumulating more material wealth for their own regard and their own comforts, but in their selfless obedience to Christ and using the resources that they were given um, for that purpose. So that's really also a great example of someone using their excesses in order to further the kingdom, right? So they were accumulating their excesses beyond their needs, not beyond their wants, and giving it to Paul for their advancing, his advancing of the ministry. This is an encouragement because unlike attempting to amass material things, which, which you cannot guarantee, as hard as you try, you can't make sure that you get the next new car or the next job or the new house or whatever it is you're trying to amass, but we can always act in obedience. That's totally within our control. We can do that through Christ who strengthens us because it's according to his will, we are told, and peace and contentment is totally obtainable when we're acting in obedience with Christ. So that's an encouragement, because that's something that we're told and we know is within our capability, unlike amassing a fortune. And fifth and finally, um, a Christian's first priority should focus on godliness and contentment rather than on riches, which often brings discontentment. So from 1 Timothy 6 through 10, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that purge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There are to to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold that which is truly life. Very poignant on the last point as well in putting our hope and our focus on God uh, and not on material items. In this case, Paul isn't saying that to be poor is to be content and to be rich is to be discontent. He's not saying that. 
This would contradict scripture and reality as we know it. Proverbs um, specifically speaks to the hardship that poverty brings. And the reality is we know that poverty brings hardship. It's hard to find contentment in poverty. You find contentment in God, but not in poverty. Proverbs, here's a few different proverbs related to, to poor poverty. Um, a poor man's brother hates him, and how much more do his friends go far from him? The poor is disliked by even his neighbor, but the rich man has many friends. Wealth brings many new friends, but the poor man is deserted by his friends. So we're not saying that poverty is, is in itself contentment. We find contentment in the Lord. We see similar warnings with regard to the wealthy. And Proverbs speaks probably more so, not probably, definitely more so, uh, with, with warnings and concerns regarding wealth than it does regarding poverty. And here's a few. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. For riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations? So you can see all of these are really pointed on the fact that wealth is fleeting. Wealth is, is here for a short time, and it may be even shorter, as we see in Job, as everything gets stripped from him. Um, it, is, it is fleeting. Our hope cannot be, or our security, our hope cannot be found in material possessions, and that is the warning. So the lesson here, and that, our goal is, that our goal should be not to attain, um, not to be rich and to obtain riches, but rather to become godly as contentment is found in the Lord and not in wealth. And I'll leave it with, with this same quote we started with from Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And ultimately, that is, that is the lesson for this morning. So um, I have printed out a paper with nine discussion questions on it um, related to what we've been covering so if everyone would go ahead and, uh, and separate into your small groups, uh, that would be great, and work through those questions. Um, I know we're all on this side, so if a few of the leaders want to go ahead and spread out across the church, that would probably, probably be helpful at this point. And then we'll wrap up with some prayer time.